If you want to get rid of all the ads, just choose the David McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts and you'll hear us without any clutter or noise or ads. Lovely, John. Beautiful. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. It is actually Holy Thursday, John. This is Holy Thursday. Well, Holy God. Well, Holy God was the day when Judas betrayed Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver. Yes, indeed. The Last Supper, the whole malarkey. <laughs> What's come over you? I'm just, I'm getting all religious in my old age. I'm getting all religious. Tomorrow's Good Friday. For Irish listeners, you'll know. Certainly it's the end of Lent. It's the end of Lent. You see, that's what I'm coming out. I've coming out from my chocolate COVID band. stroke, chocolate band, stroke, kind of booze band that went kind of pear-shaped. Yeah. But at least I tried. No, it's a religious, it's a religious ceremony. We've got Passover coming up. We're, we're in Ramadan. And we're going to talk about Israel and Palestine Yes, this week, indeed. John, not because it's Passover or Ramadan or Easter, even though all of those events are crucial because Jerusalem is amazingly the centre of those three major yeah, it religions. Is incredible. And when you're there, you really get the impression. You know, you have the Wailing Wall here, you have the dome and the rock here, you have all sorts of Christian churches which are fought over. Yeah. By, you know, Coptics fighting Greeks, fighting Armenians. It's it's amazing. So you, it's all fairy tale mumbo jumbo. Oh, it is fairy tale. Just putting it out there. You will be cancelled for that. Joke. I know. I, In the I know old days, you'll be cancelled. But yeah. we're going to talk about that. But I just want to just uh, a quick thing. Golden Discs in Dunleary closed down for the last time or closed for the last time this week. It's gone. Really? That shows you. Our, that is, no, that is the second. end of our era, John. That, that's really sad. Golden Discs, for, for anyone who doesn't know, Golden Discs was a record shop. It was a record chain. Yep. You know, there was a famous one in Dunleary, famous one on Grafton Street as well. Yes, there but was. But the one in Dunleary, we spent an inordinate, an inordinate amount of time. John and I did the leaving cert five times between us because of Golden Discs. <laughs> I remember buying T-Rex there. Exactly. Not the guru. That's you bought singular. T-Rex and I yeah. bought ABBA Arrival. <laughs> that's the difference between you that's, and me. That speaks volumes. <laughs> like, look at my new album. He's like, oh, Macker, put that away. You'll get beaten up at Monkstown Farm if you show that. Anyway. That is really sad. That is really sad. It is sad. It's, and you know why? It, of course it is, because the wave People's habits have changed. Yeah, yeah, ways. yeah. Of course, it's the same trend that has you watching Succession. It's the same trend. <laughs> it's the Mac. I finally got no, I to heard. the end. I Go, was just say it. <laughs> fuck off. 
<laughs> Actually, your man Brian Cox was in an interview recently I was watching. And, you know, normally as a celebrity, people stop him and go, oh, can I take a picture with you? People are, people are stopping and go, just tell me to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good though, isn't it's it? brilliant. I've eventually caught up, finished the last episode of series three. So I'm now ready for series four. But do you know what was interesting? What in was the, interesting? What, what popped out to me in, was it in the, the final episode or one of the final episodes I can't remember which but they're I'm just going to call you Kendall Roy from now on <laughs> uh huh <laughs> <laughs> but you do Kendall's rap <laughs> but they were in one of the banks and you know doing a deal getting finance whatever it was but the bank was Credit Suisse Oh, the Credit Suisse that has gone under that has gone under That's, it was just perfect timing that is perfect timing well interesting that the background story the real story to Credit Suisse is fascinating right so what happened was Credit Suisse, big, big bank, mm. goes bust because of its wealth management arm, right? Yeah. That's a really nice expression for taking really rich wealth fuckers' money, <laughs> right? And charging the Roy's money. A, yeah, charging Kendall a fortune <laughs> yeah. for managing his money, right? And buying yourself a yacht on Lake Geneva, right? Yeah. That's, the, that's the deal, okay? And with the, you don't ask too many questions, right? Yeah. But the reason, now here's the background noise. So the reason Credit Suisse... And UBS, the Swiss bank that I used to work for, mm. involved themselves in what was clearly a shotgun marriage, the minister of which, the priest of which was the Swiss National Bank, is because Credit Suisse is full of Russian money. Oh, right. I have been is told it? on very good authority that a significant amount of its private wealth is Russian mafia oligarch Oof. money, which is why it had to be bought over by a Swiss company. So they'd keep it in the family. And this oh. is why, because if it was a ball of an American company, that money would be sanctioned straight yeah, away. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So the reason there was a shotgun wedding and the reason that the Credit Suisse guys were so shafted, because Credit Suisse was sold for half nothing to right. UBS, right? Okay. The reason is because Credit Suisse is full of Russian oligarch money. Right? This ain't conspiracy theory. This stuff, is not, is no, 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 no. An yeah. actual fact, the head of UBS is from Cork, who the FT ran a piece has been the most important banker in the world. Right. right? In fact, today we're going to be actually interviewing the last Jew from Cork. <laughs> so there's a certain symmetry in all this. We're going to be interviewing and talking to a guy called Dan Rosehill later on, on Israel, who's a Jewish guy from Cork who has actually immigrated to Israel. Right. Interesting backstory. But the backstory is that the Russian money was absolutely crucial to Credit Suisse. And of course, the reason the whole deal was done within the Swiss family mm. was because the Americans wouldn't touch it and nobody was allowed really look deeply into the books because of the proximity of Russian oligarch money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? But the whole idea is <laughs> that the Russian money, now of course, they have loads of Russian money there. The Russians can't get their money out. So they're fleecing the Russians now. Right, okay. To take right, fees yeah. for this, that, and everything, you know? Yeah, yeah. So you open your bank account and you got fees for going to the jacks, fees for having a few smokes down the road. And of course, because the, the Russian money's trapped there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's, so that's the background noise to what's going on. And the reason this is adjacent to this conversation is, John, in 1994, I was working for UBS. Yes. Right? And I had also been working in Russia for them right? Covering Russia. As the economist saying, this is going up, this is going As down. As the economist in vertical. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and out of the blue, in about 1994, 1995, my boss calls me and he says, uh, we have an opening in Israel 
That's oh, great. Right. So I said, it's great for you. Yeah. And he said, would you like to go? And I said, what? He said, we need an economist, person to go up there and tell us what's going on in the Israeli economy. Because, now fascinatingly, we are opening up a branch in Israel because of the peace accords, because of the Oslo Accords. Right. Okay. The Oslo Accords happened in 1993. Mm. So 1994, 95, loads of Western companies decide to open up branches in Israel, which they hadn't done in the past. Now, why had they not done in the past? Because they were much more interested in Arab money. And the Arabs that said, if you open a branch in Israel, you're opening opening a branch in a foreign enemy country. Right. And yeah, therefore you can't it. have a branch in Saudi Arabia or in United right. Arab Emirates. And of course the bankers in Switzerland said, mm, do the math. Yeah. Who's got the more shekels? The Arabs, right? Yeah. But then once, of course, the Oslo Accords were signed and there was the beginning of the peace treaty between Yitzhak Rabin and our friend Yasser Arafat. Yeah. Israel opened up. So Muggins is sitting there. Right, Muggins okay, is sitting yeah, there yeah. Going, oh, okay. I remember you went over. Yeah, I and I'm sitting there. And yeah, because I was over and back from London all yeah. the time. And I said, okay, I'll go. I'll go for the for the crack. But of course, there was a subplot. And of course, I wasn't go aware on. of. What was that? Was, of course, while the Arab money wasn't in Israel, what money was going to Israel was Russian money. Okay. Russian oligarch money, Yeah. right? Because yeah. I was innocent. I just thought, oh, this is all the peace process. This is lovely. It was actually the business story. Yeah. was the fact that Russian money was going to Israel and the Swiss banks... So how long were you it. there for? On and off for about two two years, over and back, over and back. And right. I kept a flat in a place called Ramat Gan, right? And Ramat Gan is a suburb outside of Tel Aviv. And everyone's from Iraq. Everyone. Right. Okay. I'd never, I'd, I wasn't aware of Iraqi Jews before this. Yeah. In fact, the Iraqi Jews were the oldest community in the whole of the Middle East. And they all got kicked out over a period of six or seven years, right? They By Saddam Hussein. Before Saddam Hussein, and then Saddam Hussein. Oh, okay, before right. Saddam Hussein, okay. right? Uh, in the 1940s and 1950s. Mm. So basically when Israel gets set up, 800,000 Jews from Iraq, Tunisia, Morocco, all those North African countries, Arab countries, from Syria as well, are kicked out. Mm. And they end up as refugees in Israel. So this is, and I had no idea of this, yeah. right? And the older people in this apartment block spoke Arabic. Together. Right, okay. Not Hebrew. So it was yeah, really yeah. strange. Anyway. What was their relationship with the Palestinians then? Now, that's interesting. That's interesting because, first of all, they could speak Arabic, okay? Yeah. Which meant that they were... Now, again, Ramat Gan is a suburb of Tel Aviv, so it's miles away from the West Bank and far away from Gaza, okay? Mm. But the, a lot of the Palestinians, what they call Israeli Arabs, but they're actually Palestinians. There's about 2 million Israeli Arabs live in Israel. Right. And many of them lived be very, very close to the port of Jaffa, yeah. which is south of Tel Aviv, okay, which is not a million miles away from where I was. And they would have, I mean, culturally, they were very, very close mm. because what you had was they, they were Arabs. They were from Arab countries. So the food was the same. The culture was the same. The way they lived was the same. They were much closer. And then, of course, you had the... the and they mixed, though. They mixed, but not, I mean, they didn't hang out with each other. Right, okay. But they would mix in shops and in the market and whatever. Yeah, yeah. But the difference is the, the majority, the, the founding fathers of Israel were European Jews, Ashkenazi Jews. Yeah. And they used to look down their nose on the Sephardic Jews from the Arab countries. <laughs> right? The Sephardic Jews means from Spain, because right. those people originally came from Spain, or many of them came from Spain. They were kicked out of Spain by Ferdinand and Isabella in 1492. Right. Yes, yes, and yes. in yes. these areas, there were newspapers in Spanish, in a language called Ladino, that some of these people... Could Ladino? Speak. I've yeah, never it's heard called, of it's, Yeah, it's a, it's a Jewish language from Spain. It's, called, it's, a, it's like ancient Spanish. Right, And you get okay. newspapers in Ladino. It's a 
Mad place, right? Very, Many very strange. people speak Ladino. I think it's now phasing out. Mainly these people live, believe it or not, in Bosnia and in Turkey. Right. So they came, so basically those Jews left, were kicked out of Spain. Yeah. Of course, the Ottoman Empire. 15th em- century. The Ottoman uh, Empire said, I'll have you, you guys. Why don't you come and live with us? Yeah. So they all went to Turkey. And of course, the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire extended to Bosnia. So you have many, many right, in okay. Bosnia and Serbia, many Jewish people who spoke Spanish at home mm-hmm. up until 50 years ago. And I'll tell you an even more fascinating <laughs> story. It's all new to me. In the say. 1967 war, yeah. the Israeli war, right? The head of the Israeli Air Force was Bosnian, born in Bosnia. And the Israeli Air Force communicated in Serbo-Croat together. Wow. And the Arabs wow. were like, the Arabs were trying to jam. They're like, what the fuck are they saying? <laughs> they spoke Yugoslavian, Serbo-Croat. Wow. But there were so many Jews from Serbia and Bosnia and that area who ended up in Israel. So here's me yeah. in this mad apartment block full of heads just thinking, this is the maddest thing. And it was a, it was a fascinating experience. But interestingly, that country 25 years ago is a profoundly different country to the country that is Israel now. So that country was, the peace movement was huge. Mm. The peace now movement was the dominant political movement of almost everybody I met. Yeah. The Labour Party was the dominant party. It was the party that set up Israel. The idea was that Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat would do a deal and that deal would have legs. And then, of course, Rabin gets killed. He gets That's assassinated. Nice. Yeah, I remember that. Suddenly the whole thing starts to fall apart. Then, of course, what happens is the you get these, these suicide bombs in, in, in buses. Mm. And, and when you're living in, in, a, in a country and that's going on, you know, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. And then, of course, the Israelis double down in the West Bank and the whole thing. And then there, there was a rise of, of the kind of the right wing. And then the Israelis. right wing came and they yeah. were not present. Now, that's an interesting story as well, because that comes from demography. So a lot of those Arabic Jews, so to speak, the Jews who came from North Africa, Mm. and from the Arabic countries, were looked down on by the European Jews, the Ashkenazi Jews, who were actually called Yakits. That was their nickname. Because yes. when they arrived in Israel, they wore jackets. They still thought they were living in Germany and Poland. They used to come in with tweed jackets. Right. And the Israelis are saying, man, you're in the Mediterranean here. Take <laughs> off your yakke. So they were called Yakits. And that's like Ben-Gurion <laughs> and Kayan Weitzman, Herzog, and all those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I learned all this mad stuff. Anyway, at the time, what you had was the the people, and we're going to talk later about the people who are in these, they were kind of the left behinds. So the European Jews did extremely well. It was their country, in effect. They mm. said, it's our country. And they used to look down their nose on the Sephardic Jews, right? And so what has happened is the Sephardim, this is in parenthesis, like there's yeah. loads, there's just big picture, broad brush stuff, right? Mm. Then, of course, you get Orthodox, very, very religious Jews, and they're coming in and they're there in huge numbers. And of course, they're having huge amounts of kids, mm. right? Then you get these settlers. The settlers are very, very fundamentalist Jews. There's about 600,000 of them now in the West Bank, which is a lot. Yeah, and they're yeah, having yeah. lots of kids, yeah. right? So the, the demographic balance within Israel is changing dramatically within the Jewish population, right? Yeah. And all the while, of course, what you're getting is you have Gaza, which is basically an open prison. Yeah, in it effect, is, it's yeah. a prison. Absolutely. It's a prison. It you know, if you're born in Gaza, you cannot leave. Most densely populated place in, on Earth. On Earth, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And anybody who's been there, I've never been there, but anybody who's been there would just say, it's hell on Earth. Yeah. Right? And then, of course, you've got the West Bank. And the West Bank is in, was 
entirely open Palestinians, Israelis used to come and go almost as you please. There was no border. Mm. And the Israelis built a wall. Yeah. And they think they, they call it a fence, but they built a wall, they say, to stop suicide bombings. But what is actually done in effect is it's destroyed community life in the West Bank. Yeah. And, it's, it's it's akin to South African apartheid. Yeah, and of course, Israelis will say, well, oh, no, it's not apartheid because the Israeli population is 9 million. Okay, so it's a big population, right? Of that 9 million, there's 2 million. Again, I'm broad brush. Mm. 2 million, what they call Israeli Arabs, who are Arabs who were born in Israel. Now, these are people who were there in the beginning, whose people have been displaced by what they call the Nakba, which was the 1947 I wouldn't say evacuation, it wasn't. The Israelis threw out hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, okay? Kicked mm. them out of their houses, right? Yeah. And the other ones, they said, look, we're going to kill you if you don't leave. So they left. So the people who stayed, the Arabs who stayed, comprised about two million of the Israeli population. And Israelis always say, well, there's no apartheid because they can vote, right? Yeah. And that is true. There are Arabs, there were Arab parties in the last government, yeah. in the last coalition. Yeah, yeah. But the people in the West Bank can't vote. So the West yeah. Bank is like a military dictatorship. So you have, Israel is a democracy and it's vibrant and it's as vibrant as anything that we have here. But it's a democracy that presides over a military dictatorship in somebody else's country. But, and that's the problem. Okay, and, and but one of the things I do know about Israel is that they don't, they never got round to creating a proper constitution. Ah, yes, you're and right. The, the intention was to have a constitution, but they never got round to it because they, because of all the different factors. Because all the flux, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, they, yeah. Were, they were bickering all the way through. So partly because of that, but also because of Netanyahu and the rise of the right and all that kind yeah. of stuff, they were going to change the... They call it a basic law. The basic law, right. But they were going to change how the Supreme Courts worked and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then hundreds of thousands of Israelis... Just went mad. Went mad, came out the street, which seems to be dying down now, but it was a real threat to Israeli democracy and even talk of civil war and all that. Explain a little bit more about that. Okay, so, you know, most countries, particularly countries that are republics, Mm. okay, that have an elected president, the elected president of Israel is a guy called Bougie Herzog, whose dad is Irish. Yes. This is the weird thing, you know? The only elected president of any foreign country whose dad is Irish, who can get an Irish passport, is in Israel. We don't want to admit that because yeah. we're very pro-Palestinian, yeah. right? And we are pro-Palestinian because they have been occupied. And it's yes, yeah, in we the Irish DNA. Yes, in fact, I'll tell you a great story. An Israeli mate of mine, her dad, a big football supporter, yeah. okay? And he was visiting us one day and we met him. It was in the former Yugoslavia. So yeah. he arrives in and he's originally from there. So his grandparents are from there. And we're talking football. You know, you talk to an old guy, have a couple of pints, sit, chat yeah, away, yeah. football, whatever. And he said, uh, he, said uh, he said, I didn't realise there were so many Arabs in <laughs> Glasgow. Yeah. I said, well, first of all, I'm not from Glasgow. <laughs> yeah. But I said, how do you mean you didn't realise there were so many Arabs in Glasgow? He said, he said, Hapolim, Tel Aviv, Hapolim, one of the Israeli teams that he right. follows were playing Celtic. Right. And Celtic was covered in Palestinian flags. And he thought they were all Arabs. I said, no, they're all patties. <laughs> they're all Irish. And he was like, what? They're Irish and they're Palestinian? I said, man, I'll sit you down. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the history. Have a pint. Have a pint. Relax. Relax. And I'll tell you the history. But fascinatingly, Israel doesn't have a written constitution. Not unlike Britain. Britain mm. doesn't have a written constitution either. So what the Israelis have, though, is a thing called the basic law. Right, And from that, 
all the law stems from. So that means that the separation of powers between the judiciary and the executive and the government is even more important if you Mm. want to run a democracy. Why? Because there's no constitution. So if you fill your Supreme Court with political appointees in a country with no constitution, anything can happen. Yeah. Right? If you fill, for example, in Ireland, the Supreme Court, it kind of does fill them with political appointees. Because I've always found that amazing about here in Ireland. They say, oh, he's a Labour judge. Like, I do not mean a Labour judge appointed by Labour or appointed by Fine Gael? I didn't know this. That the judiciary is political right, at one level here, mm. you know. I mean, but I think they're very independent here. But imagine, just think about it. If you have a constitution, at least then what you can have is you can have a constitutional claim in the Supreme Court. You can say, okay, what you've done is unconstitutional. Me as a citizen can go to the Supreme Court. Like the way they do it in Germany. Like the way they do it in Germany, yeah. And they yeah. do it here all the time as well. You know, in lots of cases will will go all the way to the Supreme Court and then the Supreme Court will interpret the Constitution and then that becomes new law or new interpretations. Yes. And yeah, that's yeah. how the law builds and builds and builds and builds, right? But in the Israeli case, the big fear was that Netanyahu was following the Trump playbook, which is you're going to... Push your own people into the Supreme Court. You're going to undermine the independence of the judiciary. And lo and behold, in time, everybody is going to think like a right winger. Yeah. And that's what they're, so they went mad over that. But then, of course, lots of people say, yeah, you go mad over your constitution or your Supreme Court, but you're not going mad over the human rights abuses that are going on daily in the West Bank. In East Jerusalem. Yes. In these places where your soldiers are still occupying mm. in huge, huge areas. And that, of course, is the is the massive dilemma because what you have is an open sewer physically and an open wound politically festering away in Israel. And that is something that it's inescapable. It needs to be dealt with. But the, the only thing interesting, though, Mac, is that Israel has always been just at that, on the verge. But recently, this whole thing with the, the Supreme In the last Court, few days, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Has, has, you know, brought the normal, the average, the non-political Israeli out in the street. Like, there's hundreds of thousands yeah, of, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. out on the street of all hues. Yes, no, absolutely. Well, I think, you know what we should do? Let's go to Israel and let's talk to an Irish guy, an Irish Jewish guy who has emigrated there recently and get his take on the whole thing. His name is Daniel Rosal. He's originally from Cork. We go to Jerusalem and talk to him. Great. Now we've been discussing Israel. We've been chatting away. I, I was telling you I was an economist there years and years ago, got to know the country to a small extent. If you can get to know any country, and uh, go over and back every now and then. I haven't been back for a good few years now, but I'm still a lot of Israeli friends, and obviously they're keeping me up to date as to what is going on in that society. But one man whose voice I think will be very interesting to hear is our next guest, Dan Rosehill, originally from Cork, made what uh, Jewish people call Aliyah, which is going to Israel, emigrating to Israel a couple of years ago. He's on the line for Jerusalem. Dan, how are you? Hi, Dave. I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Great to uh, great to join remotely here. Well, as I was saying, the, the podcast is going to be called The Last Jew in Cork. Was that you? <laughs> there is there there are people uh, very closely related to me who would take issue with that exact description. But uh, I'll, I'm as as you said, I, I should probably own it for uh, just for, for the purpose of clarity. I am I am. This is the voice of the last 
do in court. <laughs> so tell me, what's the story? Tell me it. So I moved here. Um, I moved to Israel in uh, 2015. So I've actually been here, living here for eight years in uh, Jerusalem. And uh, before that, as you said, I grew up in Cork. And, uh, you know, there was a very small Jewish community there for a number of years in a synagogue and what have you. And I moved to Israel in search of richer Jewish life uh, than could be uh, found in uh, in Cork. And I mean, I did a I did a trip to Israel when I was sort of in my teens, and that sort of made an impression on me. And uh, that's it. I've um, I've stuck it out since. And in terms of the community in Cork, is it almost gone now completely? Or there's only a few of you left. So the synagogue closed its doors in 2016, but there has been a sort of new breakaway community since then. They're a bit less uh, religious. They're more, we have in Judaism, uh, reform Judaism, which is sort of less strict on its laws, as I'm sure you know, Dave, from having uh, having lived here. Less of it in Israel, actually. But so they, they've got sort of a group together and they've just got a Torah scroll, which in the Jewish world is uh, considered quite a, quite a big deal. Is there any truth to the story that the Jews of Cork largely came from Lithuania and they were on a boat to New York and somebody said Cork and they thought, sound like New York, we get off here. That's that's the uh, <laughs> so story. Yeah. That's the story, apparently. You have it, you have, you have it down. It's, it's, it's only the thousand and first time that I've heard someone say it. So, um, But whether it's true or not, I mean, it, 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 it sounds like a bit of a fairy tale. But then again, you know, you have to think these guys were not speaking English. I believe in the 19th century, there was no Google Maps uh, not knocking about yet. So, yeah, the um, WhatsApp it, group it's, was broken. The WhatsApp group was broken. So it's it's credible. I, you know, when I often heard that story, I thought it would have been uh, more interesting growing up in New York. But having actually met a ton of American Jews here, I actually think it was a lot more interesting growing up in Cork. <laughs> well, exactly. Listen, I won't get into an inter-Jewish rouse over who's the... But listen, I want to come back to you. So you've, you've been living in Israel... Anytime I go to Israel, it feels like you're in a pressure cooker, right? Mm. It feels that, you know, there's a tension, there's a pressure, people fly off the handle, people go from naught to 60, like incredibly emotional, incredibly expressive people, you know, just even driving in Tel Aviv, it's like, oh my God, just a head wreck completely. I mean, what's it like living there? Like, so you come from Cork and you head to, to Israel. What was it like? What's it like acclimatizing? It's definitely a very, very different culture. Irish culture is very sort of conciliatory, people trying to get on with one another, let's say. Whereas I feel like in Israel, one of the defining aspects of the culture is it almost feels like people take joy in disagreement and arguments, which is something, you know, that after eight years, I still have a, a lot of trouble with sort of when people get into a row, you sort of get your defenses up. As you mentioned about sort of people, you know, flying off the handle, you have to remember it's a Mediterranean country. And when I go to sort of, I've been to Greece and Italy once since moving here, and you sort of see these commonalities between Israeli culture and these cultures that it kind of makes sense after a while because, you know, it's just a, it's a very different uh, temperament, whatever. Maybe it's the weather or, as you say, the political situation, the cost of living, the extreme consumption of Turkish coffee, or maybe all of those factors mm. uh, makes, <laughs> makes people a little touchy for sure. But listen, I want to come back to you. So you've, you've been living in Israel what do you make of what's going on? It strikes me that it's almost like a sort of a Brexit-style culture war at the, at the core between Netanyahu and the opposition. Well, there, yeah, there's huge protests going on at the moment because, you know, the government have tabled these kind of crazy judicial reform proposals. And it's kind of hard to keep track of. I mean, when you're living here, sort of surrounded by it, you, I personally tend to sort of stop watching the news for a few days at a time because it gets a bit overwhelming. But there is some sort of a compromise but uh, it doesn't, um, 
my feeling is there hasn't been the end yet of what's going on, but it does sound like there is, it is sort of a civil war in the making because you have these, there's a good chunk of the Israeli population that's very religious. There's a good chunk that is completely unreligious and they're just nationalistic. So I think it's brought to the fore all these different strands of Israeli society and really kind of shown that there are big things that haven't been resolved yet. Tell me, okay, as an Irishman, you brought up in Ireland, right? I want to talk to you about Palestinians. What is your sense, what is your feel for what is going on in the West Bank? Because you come from, it's a, you're very unusual because you've got your Jewish background, you've got your Irish background, you've got both sensibilities all the time. It makes you probably an unusual Israeli in many ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's sort of a transition. I, I I feel personally like I'm at sort of the weird kind of netherworld that a lot of immigrants here get stuck between where you've left one culture and you're not quite really sort of, it's difficult for me to identify still as an Israeli because, you know, when you don't speak the language 100% fluently and for you other to, reasons. Uh, if, you, if you say Langer with a proper Cork accent, you'll never be one. Can I say Langer? Langer. <laughs> you, see, you see, that's it. That wasn't, that, 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 that wasn't the best, but I, I, haven't, I haven't had a few years of practicing it. But um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the situation with the, with the Palestinians, I mean, I think that Israel is never going to sort of reach its potential when it's got this, what most of the world sees as a, you know, as an occupation. And it really is sort of a, a, a not right situation with the Palestinians. The latest Israeli government is a very, very far right nationalistic government. And it's a case of there is sort of international pressure for Israel to not do stuff like annex part of the West Bank and uh, behave in a in that kind of a way. But even if they don't do that, I mean, I think the long term prospects for peace are are kind of distant because there's at just at this point decades of ill will, and there's a there's a good deal of extremism on both sides, both the Palestinian side who sort of want you know Israel obliterated, and then you've got extremism on the Israeli side who want all the Palestinians kicked out. So. It's very difficult to to really see much progress at the moment, but uh, you know there is always a chance if there is moderate leadership on both sides that some sort of progress could be made. I, I you know I mean the the kind of Trump administration was working on that and kind of had this almost very business like deal of let's buy peace by uh, you know presenting this business offer and that just fell flat. So I don't think that that strategy didn't work, but maybe maybe something more like a peace process. But it's been very, very dead for years. And in the meantime, Israel is sort of advancing its relations with the Gulf states. So there's a lot of dynamics going on. No, it just it always struck me when I was in Tel Aviv years and years ago, in Ramakan actually, that what the Israeli state had been very good at was actually separating Israelis from the Palestinian issue so that you could go for weeks and weeks and weeks and never really think about it. And never really be present. You know what I mean? You never really, unless you were going in your, like you're in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem, you feel it because you're all living together, right? But in Israel itself, in the other parts of Israel, the more Mediterranean parts of Israel, you could really go for for weeks and and, and not really be aware of things. Yeah, that's almost a reason I actually, I mean, there are disadvantages to living in Jerusalem, mostly sort of actually practical stuff. Like there's a lot less uh, jobs here than in Tel Aviv. But I do kind of like that because as you say, when you're in, in you know, they, they have an expression in Hebrew called uh, Medinat Tel Aviv, which means literally the state of Tel Aviv. And the idea is that it kind of functions as if it's its own country. And you can just go there and you see the big skyscrapers. It almost looks a bit like New York these days. And I almost like the fact that in Jerusalem, nothing's hidden. You literally look into East Jerusalem. As you say, we're, we're, we're meshed here together and there's no real getting away from it. So it does make it a bit more uh, stressful, I think, as a city. And there is this background level of stress. But you're right. I mean, I think Israel has done almost 
too good a job at compartmentalizing between the sort of high-tech Israel and the stuff going on in the West Bank, which is literally behind a wall. And I think that makes it kind of less sustainable because a lot of people, you just don't see it. Can I ask you before you go, Dan, about the, the Israeli psyche, to the extent you've been there for eight years, you're embedded in the society there. A lot of Irish people, Westerners in general, will have said, look, you know, the Israelis get all upset about the Supreme Court. We understand that they're out in the street, but they're not out in the street over Gaza. They're not out in the street over the army in the, in the West Bank, etc. Can you Can you explain as best you can, you know, why Europeans in particular can't get their head around this and why it actually has happened that way? I think... The protests at the moment, I mean, the turnout for the last one was more than 100,000 people, which were, which was huge. I think really the difference is that everyone sees himself as being affected by this change to Israel's democracy. So whether you're against or for or against, literally everyone is kind of coming out because they, they feel like they have a stake in the battle. You know, there are protests against Israeli military operations, occupation. I was at one actually a few days ago in Jerusalem or saw one. So uh, they do exist, but it's a more marginalized uh, group in society. And there's a very strong, Israel's become very right-wing and nationalistic over the past couple of decades. So I think that's really a factor as well, is that people who do want to sort of make their voice heard against, let's say, an operation in Gaza or, you know, against uh, policy in the West Bank in general. It's a real thing now. People are feeling silenced. People are feeling cancelled, to use that word. And there's been a flight of people, sort of the more left-leaning Israelis who are not in Tel Aviv, a lot of them have left the country as Israel has kind of pivoted to the right and not to be pessimistic, but it does seem to be going to the far, only getting worse, the government's getting more right-wing. So I, I think that's really what's behind the disparity, those two factors. So Daniel, it's brilliant to talk to you. Thanks so much for taking the call and taking the time. Thanks for having me on, David. Really, really appreciate it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's really interesting getting a, uh, an Israeli view, especially through the, the eyes and of... And the Israeli a, fellow from McCurtain Street in Cork. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. But what is even more interesting, perhaps a little worrying, is the fact that he was talking about the kind of the rise of the right wing. 
and the more moderate left-wing Israelis are leaving Israel. Yeah. But there is this rise of the right. And as you said earlier about, you know, Netanyahu basically using Trump's playbook, you know, and... It's very much Trump's playbook, you know. It really is. I mean, when I was there years ago, and I've been over and back. In fact, I was at the largest non-Jewish tourist event ever in the history of Israel was the Republic of Ireland playing Israel. I swear. It's always bloody football. It was, it was. 2003 or four. I can't remember. I went over, it was, it was, it was the greatest crack. Yeah. And uh, it was one all. Clinton Morrison scored in the first minute and their lot scored in the last minute. And of course, it was an Arab guy scored for the Israeli team. Oh, yeah, controversial. No, so with all these ways, look, look, we've got Arabs in the football team. Oh, right. right. Anyway, anyway, when I was there, it coincided with the arrival of one and a half million Russians into Israel. One and a half million people arrived from about 1990 to about 1994, 95. The supposition was that the Russians would become moderate left, you know, moderate centrist voters. Mm. They didn't. They shifted right. They took that almost very Russian idea which is if you screw with us, we'll screw with you. Yeah. And it was very, very black and white. So people like Nathan Sharansky and all these people who had been refuseniks in Russia, and people would have thought very much liberals, arrive into Israel and the Russian population becomes quite, quite right-wing. Right-wing economically, not culturally. So low taxes, low state. They've done the communist thing. They don't right. want to do that again, right? Yeah. That's the first thing. They contribute enormously to the takeoff of the tech sector because the Russians were all scientists and mathematicians yeah. and all yeah. that sort of things. Yeah. And their kids have this, you know, if, if your parents are mathematicians, there's a very good chance you're going to be one of your scientists, all that sort of stuff. So the Russians give the Israelis a massive comparative advantage in tech, mm. right? Huge. It was like getting the brainiest people arriving on your shores in one go. So surprise, surprise, a generation later, Israeli tech is unbelievably powerful. And Israel and Ireland are the two tech yeah, They're very similar in that way, aren't they're they? Very similar, and they had a, a similar trajectory as well. Similar trajectory, except for the following, that we decided to bring in American companies and we'd work for them. Mm. The Israelis did the opposite. They said, we don't want American companies. We want to create our own startups. But they, they wanted American money. They wanted American money. So yeah. they got American money and they created Israeli startups. So there's been a kind of a, both countries have gone together, but there's been a sort of a different trajectory in terms yeah. of how they've done yeah. it, right? And some people in Ireland say we should have gone the startup route because then we'd own the equity and we'd have a much deeper startup culture. People I know in Israel said, you know what? We would have been better off working for the Americans. We would have mm. got to where we wanted to get quicker. Had we quicker, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, the long and the short is, so the Russians came in, they shift to the right, all the while the settlers are emigrating into the West Bank. In the West Bank, they're having lots of kids. They're very right-wing. Yeah. But they're culturally right-wing. So you have the Russians are economically right-wing. Don't read, they're not religious. They don't really care that much about culture. Yeah. The settlers are unbelievably right-wing in culture. Mm. They hate Palestinians. Yeah. And of course, the big Hasidim, the Haredim, they're called, the, the very religious people, don't even go to the Israeli army. Some of them don't even recognize the Israeli state. But they are... Yeah, they don't. Right. Jesus. They don't. They, they believe that the state can't happen until the Messiah, Messiah comes and the Messiah's not here, so it's not a state. I mean, it's all this mad stuff. Jesus. Yeah. There's loads of these people. Yeah, yeah. But they all vote. Yeah. So yep. all these, the weird coalition that... Is that double standard? <laughs> so Bibi Netanyahu, who is like Trump, 
Yes. Corrupt, always. He's got lots of women. He's, yeah. he's up Loads of wives. Loads of wives. Yeah, loads of wives. And he's, all, he's you know, he's on corruption charges. He's fighting this, that, and yeah, the other, yeah. right? He sits on top of this weird, weird coalition. They're bonded together by social right-wingism, economic right-wingism, and cultural right-wingism. And it's a completely fractured coalition. But as Dan said, that is the new Israel. And as you said, it's like Brexit. Right. It's the left behind, it's the people that feel they don't belong. And they're pointing up and saying, that's the elite up there. The elite are in the Supreme Court. Mm, mm. And the elite are in the Central Bank. And the elite are in Tel Aviv. This and they're rich. echoing all over the world, actually. It's, it's exactly the same. Yeah. And, you know, they feel they don't have a stake in society, but they have a vote. So, so where's it going to lead to then? Well, I think, you know, when I talk to my friends over there who are all liberal Israelis, they always say things like, you know, oh, but look, we've got a great big gay pride mar- march, you know, yeah. right? And they're trying to cling on to, I always call it gay washing. It's like green washing, right? right? Okay, <laughs> I said, you may well have a very vibrant LGBT community, and that's great. But that doesn't take away from the fact that you're occupying somebody else's country. Yes, Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, you, you know, yeah. You, yeah. You, the, the damage has been done every day. I think that psychologically, and I think Dan might have said it, that the, he, he believes that Israel can't really progress and achieve its full potential as long as it has this occupation of somebody else's country. Now, again, John, demographics are the key. So the Israeli population has increased dramatically. It is now, sorry, it's 9.6 million. Mm. The Israeli of that 2 million are Arabs. The population of the West Bank is 3 million. If they annex the West Bank, as the right-wingers want to do, it means the Arab population goes to 5 million. Right. Think about it. So suddenly the Arab population is moving up towards the Jewish population. Now, Israel's essential raison d'etre after the Holocaust is to be a Jewish state. If they annex the West Bank, that Jewish majority begins to disappear. And if the Arabs are beginning to have or continue to have as many children as they do, very, very soon, and this is the problem, the Israeli Ashkenazi liberals will become a minority within their own country. So you will have religious right-wing hardliners as the majority mm-hmm. of Jews, mm-hmm. Arabs as the other majority, and the ballast, the sort of what you would call liberal Israelis, who were the people who voted for labor all the time, people for peace, they become a minority. So... The long-term projection is that if Israel sticks its two fingers up to the UN, there's no reason to believe it won't do this because that's what it's been doing for the last 20 years, yeah. 50 years, right? If they annex the West Bank, Israel is no longer a Jewish state. So the only solution that preserves the integrity of the Jewish state is the two-state solution. But that's the solution that the right-wingers don't want. So they're kind of caught in a bind. But what about the Abraham Accord? Well, I think there's about three or four different strands going on from what I can gather, which is the Israelis are currying favour with the Gulf states. Yeah. That's the one thing. The Iranians and the Saudis have now got a deal. Yeah. That terrifies the Israelis. Absolutely. Because the Israelis used Iran as 
their excuse for doing whatever the hell they liked in the region. They said, look, those guys have got nuclear power. They're what? They want nuclear weapons and they're going to use it. Mm. The Israelis have their own nukes, right? But now that Iran is cuddling up to Saudi Arabia... The whole complexion of the Middle that, East yeah, is it changing. Sunni and Shia bigwigs, not the people on the ground, but the bigwigs mm. are on the same side. And therefore, the entire Israeli strategy, which was always isolate the Palestinians, try and push the Palestinians towards being more radical, do a deal with the more progressive or wealthier Arabs, make sure that Iran and Saudi Arabia don't do a deal together and depend on the Americans to broker everything because the Americans are on their side. Yeah. What has happened is the Chinese have come in. Yes. To yes. broker. Yes. To broker the deal. And the Chinese don't have a dog in the fight in Israel. They're like, Jewish people? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, they don't have a dog in a fight. They have a, they have a dog in a bigger fight, yeah. which is making sure that the two biggest suppliers of oil in the region aren't fighting each other because that drives up the price of oil and China is an oil importer. So we're back to where we started the podcast about two years ago, three years ago, the price of oil, Johnny boy. The price of oil. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.